All right, so I wanted you to see that video for a couple of reasons. The first of which is that the McKesses are going to be here next week. And some of you have actually probably worked with them over in London. Well, they're adjusting ministries, but um, we'll be moving over to Dublin. But they're going to be here next week, and I'm going to interview them. You're going to hear from Shane. It's going to be a great time. But the second reason that I wanted you to kind of see what they were doing is I I love the images that were in there. They talked about relational evangelism, life-on-life evangelism, and I saw pizza in there, and I saw coffee. Now, those are top ten things for David Chauncey. And I know probably top ten for you, there's a lot of great conversations that can be had around a meal, a cup of coffee. It's a great way to have a gospel conversation, and that's what this sermon series is about, because Jesus is sharing these incredible stories, many of them at a table, and many of them around a meal, but he just kind of shared them as he sat in people's homes and as he connected with people. And I want to go to our second meal. Let's go to Luke chapter 20 this morning, Luke chapter 20, and this is a This is a great meal. This is a great parable. But I'm telling you, it gave the religious leaders indigestion. Uh, They had some serious heartburn after this. In fact, this is in the final week of Jesus' life. And he is just coming right out in the open with who he is. He's just telling them that they're part of the problem. And uh, this story, the story of the noble vineyard owner and his son, is pretty famous. It's not as famous as the Good Samaritan. But I want you to know it, and I am praying that God will really speak to you and speak to me uh, as we walk through this story. And it is a, it is a, it is a principle, and you can take this story and, and move it a little bit into in modern time, but it, I think it gives you the essence of a gospel conversation. I'm helping somebody see that God created them, God gave them life, and God wants to give them eternal life. And so let's read this together, beginning in verse 9. Then Jesus began to tell the people this parable. Now, if you're used to me reading from the ESV, I've switched translations today, just for today. Um, uh, This one's just a tad bit clearer. And then he began to tell the people this parable. And for those of you that are new, parables are word pictures. These aren't necessarily real-life stories, but things that could have happened. But they're to get across a principle. And he says this, A man planted a vineyard, leased it to tenant farmers, and went on a journey for a long time. Now, we, we do that even in our day. People that have a lot of uh, real estate and different things, they'll buy a home or buy, have a big piece of property, but they don't work it. They lease it out, and they expect those who lease it out to give them a part of the proceeds or a part of the crop. Well, this was evidently a wealthy landowner. He went away to maybe live where it was cooler during the summer. It's hot there in Israel, but these folks uh, leased the land and therefore paid rent, which was in the form of crops. And so he did what normal landowners would have done there in verse 10. When harvest time came, he sent a slave to the tenants so that they would give him his rent, his portion of the crop. However, the tenants beat his slave and sent him away empty-handed. So he sent another slave. They beat this one too, but they upped it. They treated him outrageously and sent him away empty-handed it gets even worse. Verse 12. So he sent still a third. Then, even the wo- then they even wounded, beat this one up, and threw him out. And here's the, here's the climax of the entire parable. Verse 13. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what should I do? I'm going to ask you that question. What would you do? 
If you'd sent three notices in the form of people to your renters, they beat them up and sent them home without the rent. What would you do? I mean, we know what we would do. We'd call the law. We would, if we were maybe back in this time, we would have gotten a little militia together and kicked them off the land. We would have demanded our rent. But it's amazing. Here's the shock in the parable. And there always are these little surprising moments in the story that makes people think. And it's a pause here that's it's really meaningful if you think about it in terms of God stopping in grace and saying, what should I do? I will send my dear son, my one dear son, perhaps when they see him, they will be so ashamed of their actions that they'll actually respect my son. Maybe if I send him. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to one another, this is the heir. This is the guy. Let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? So Jesus is looking squarely at his audience, which was probably a group of people in the temple area. Maybe he was in a different home at this point. But he's sitting around and he said, what do you think the owner is going to do now that the son has been killed? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to who? To others. And when the people heard this, they said, may this never be. I mean, it would be one thing. This is what was surprising. Because the people were starting to pick up on this because they knew the vineyard represented Israel. It didn't take them long to realize he was talking about them. And they knew the messengers were the prophets, and they began to see, oh, no. And then they knew they were sort of getting angry along with uh, Jesus. Yeah, God should bring judgment. The owner should bring, bring judgment. And he said, yeah, the, the, the owner's going to come and destroy the tenants. And everybody's like, yeah, well, they should destroy those religious leaders. They've messed up Israel. They've done all of that. Destroy them. But that's not where Jesus stopped. He said, well, they're going to actually take the vineyard and give it to someone else. No, surely not. Verse 17, but Jesus looked straight at them and said, then what is the meaning of that which is written in Psalm 118, if you're wondering? The stone the builders rejected has become the what? The cornerstone. Everyone who falls on this stone, trips on this stone, stumbles on this stone is going to be broken to pieces. And the one on whom, on whom the stone falls will be crushed. Then the experts in the law and the chief priests wanted to arrest them. That very hour, we've got to silence this guy. Because they realized he had told this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us to see the deep, rich grace and truth and warning of this text. Help us see how it applies to our lives and help us see how we can share it with others for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, over the years I've known some people whose loved ones have died and they've donated their organs. We were just talking about the lungs. And then sometimes those people that got the different organs would write letters to the parents 
thanking them. Some of you may have known people like that. And then I've known some people that have had heart transplants, lung transplants, liver transplants, kidney transplants. And I'm telling you, those people are grateful. Because they realize, I bet Greg's going to be this way, that at least for the first months or years of his life, he might thank God every time he breathes. These lungs aren't mine. These came from somebody else. And the real, the real brokenness of humanity, if we boil it right down, the real nature of sin is that we as creations think we're the creator. We begin to look at our lives and our lungs and our lifestyles and all that we have, our time, and we begin to look at those things and we decide we're in charge. And we forget that all of this has been created by the vineyard owner. Now, you can think of it in terms of the universe, you can think of it in terms of the world, you can think of it in terms of your health, or you can even think of it as a, maybe as a Christian, you're thinking about all this blessed life and all the blessings of life have come from the owner. The Bible says very clearly, we're sojourners, we're passing through, we're leasers, we're renters. We're to have dominion. He, he took Adam and Eve and he planted them in the garden, but he made the garden. In fact, he made Adam. And he made Eve out of the dust. And they got to the point, here's what sin did. God, you're kind of cramping our style. Get out of my garden. Uh, we like our garden better without you. And that's the root sin, isn't it? Is that pridefulness. <sighs> Glad I made these lungs that breathe for me. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. What is the truth that humanity is suppressing? I belong to God. God created me. I need to respond to my Creator in worship and submission. We suppress that truth. We're like, get God out of my garden. We like it here. We want all the blessing without the owner. Verse 21 in Romans 1 says, For they knew God, but they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. I think that's the root sin of our parable, isn't it? The guy comes saying, Hey, where's... Uh, I just see this poor slave walking up and saying, Hey, y'all had a bumper crop. Man, I'm sure you're getting a lot out of this land... Uh, where's the share for the owner? They're like, get out of here. Next one comes, they beat him up. Next one comes, they treat him outrageously and kick him out. And so you and I have the tendency to want to live in that kind of rebellion against God. You know what Christians are? Christians are people who come to the point that they recognize that tendency. Christians are people to come to the understand that the natural heart has enmity and actually despises God. I don't know. How many of you plan on having teenagers one day? Just raise your hand if you plan on having teenagers. 
or children. You want a children. You can feel this sometimes when you have children. And I don't know many families that have been, if, because as you're teaching, as you're uh, disciplining and putting rules on children, in particular when they get into middle school, and you start putting those rules on, it is not unusual at some point for them to be so mad at you, so mad at you that they look at you and they say the one thing that they know intuitively is the most hurtful thing they could possibly ever say to you, and it comes out. Do you know what they say? I hate you. And it is painful. And you know as a parent they don't mean it. And if you're a Christian parent, you know where it comes from. We don't want owners. We don't want to be renters. We don't want control. And in the essence, we hate God when he messes in our garden, when he wants to tell us what to do in our garden. And Christians, are the, Christians come to the point where they recognize that and they turn to Christ hoping for a new heart. Well, I got some good news for you as we get going. Well, let's look at this setting. Let's look at the sin and then the stone. The setting of the parable will help you understand it a little bit better. Here's the setting. It is a very volatile moment. And here's why it's volatile. Jesus had just walked into the city of Jerusalem a day or so late earlier, and they proclaimed him king. Remember all the disciples and followers, are, are they're actually quoting Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and they're singing Hosanna. We call that Palm Sunday, right? It was the triumphal entry. How do you think the religious leaders like that? This guy from Nazareth comes in. Well, the people have proclaimed a king, but, the, but the, uh, the religious leaders, the tenants, the ones who are running the vineyard, they don't kill him right off because they are fearful of the people, it says right here in the Scripture. But then he does another thing that amps it up, and I'm telling you this made them furious. He cleansed the temple. And that happened right in Luke chapter 19. He got and he made the whip. You know that story probably if you're not. Jesus is in there. He's teaching. But he finally says, all right, this is going to really make a statement. And he, he drives. Just imagine the authority that Jesus wielded just in his voice and his bearing. He drove, this was a 35-acre complex, and he cleaned it out. He and his followers basically took over the temple and made it a quiet place for his teaching and a place of prayer. And he put the money changers out of business. They had forgotten what the temple was for. And so between the triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple, the tenants, the renters, were furious. They were furious. And it is into that setting that they ask this question. Luke 21 20, verse 1, Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. The chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up. And this is after the, the triumphal entry. And then him cleansing the temple. And they said a very honest question. Tell us by what authority you do these things or who in the world do you think you are? And he tells them this parable. I'm the owner's son. 
Now, here's the shocking thing is that Israel had been praying for hundreds of years that God would start sending prophets again, and they had been praying that the temple and Israel would be clean enough and pure enough, cleaned up, cleaned up enough for the glory of God to come back in the temple. The glory had departed in Ezekiel's days. It had departed. And they were praying, God, clean us up. Clean up the temple. And may God return to his temple. Guess what? Jesus cleaned the temple, and God walked into the temple, and they threw him out. That's the setting. What's the sin? Well, the great sin of this I've already mentioned But what he's basically saying and what this audience realized is that the vineyard, and it always did, it represented Israel. God planted the vineyard. He took them out of Egypt. He took them faithfully through the wilderness for 40 years. They could do none of this. He transplanted them and planted them in the the land of Cana, and, and that was the promised land. He said, that is my vineyard. You're my vineyard. But when he came looking for fruit... He found none. Let me give you a couple of scriptures. Isaiah 5, 7 says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. Watch this. And he looked. God is looking what, for, for what fruit? He's looking for the fruit of justice. They should be a just people. What does he find? Bloodshed in Israel. He's looking for righteousness. He's given them the law. He's given them prophet after prophet after prophet. But behold, what does he hear? The outcry of people who are uh, being treated with injustice. This is the same people. Genesis 12, 3. He said, in you, Israel, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He had a purpose and a mission for Israel. And so this parable tells us that they are rejecting the mission. And the mission was to bear fruit, the fruits of righteousness and the fruits of being a light to the nation. Isaiah 42, 6 says, I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nation. And exactly what Jesus said when he cleansed the temple, he said this was to be the court of the Gentiles. You were to be a light. This was to be a house of prayer for the nations. And you've decided this life is about you. And in your garden, you don't want any Gentiles. You want it to yourself. You want it to enrich yourself, to bless yourself. And so they rejected their mission. They also rejected all of the messengers. Now, you just read the Old Testament. Prophet after prophet after prophet would come, prophesy. They might get a little bit better for a while and then fall back. Before you get too down on Israel, we do the same thing. Israel was a lesson, a visual lesson for the rest of the world that we desperately need a Savior. We need God to do for us what we can't do ourselves. But they had forgotten. You know what the ultimate sin that we commit, and I think the sin that they committed, is they begin to think they were owners instead of renters. And in Leviticus 25, listen to what God said very plainly. Leviticus 25, he tells them as they're moving into the promise, and he says, The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, belongs to me. You are strangers and sojourners with me, and in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. Uh, He says the land 
belongs with me. I love verse 23. He says, uh, you are only foreigners, sojourners, and tenant farmers. The Living Translation says, working for me. Do you see yourselves that way? You are fruit bearers. You are those who are working in his garden. Israel rejected the mission. They rejected the messengers, and then they rejected the Messiah. They rejected their Messiah. But let's look at the stone. Let's look at the stone in this parable. At the very end, he, he quotes this stone. He quotes this passage out of Psalm 118. He says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. They were absolutely shocked at what Jesus was saying. But this verse is a prophecy of it. There is an old story, and I don't know if it's true or not. It's kind of a traditional story that when they were building the temple, they had the stones, and I know this to be true, they cut the stones in a place far off so that when they brought these massive stones to build the temple... There was no hammering and chiseling going on in the city. They perfectly fit, so all they needed to do was put it together like Legos, but giant bus-sized Legos. Uh, and so they got going, and the workers said, well, we need to find the cornerstone. It came time to put the cornerstone, and they didn't see it, so they sent word, and the guy said, well, that was the first thing we sent. We sent that a long time ago. And the foreman began to think about it, and there was this big stone that nobody knew what it was for. They kept tripping over it, kept stubbing their toes on it. It was always in the way of their business. So he finally called some guys and said, would you all get rid of this? And they actually took the cornerstone, and they rolled it off down in the grass in the Kidron Valley. And the foreman said, oh, yeah, I guess, I think I remember where the stone is. And so they went. And they had rejected the cornerstone and they brought it back and were able to lay it into that temple. Now, I don't know if that, sto if that story is true, but I do know that Israel rejected the Messiah. And that Messiah didn't stay rejected. Here's what happened. Those religious leaders were determined to kill Jesus. They had to silence him. Because he was basically coming back as the owner's son and saying, the temple is mine, Israel is mine, and they were not going to have it. And so they actually convinced the Romans to kind of come alongside of them, and they thought they were free of the, uh, uh, the blood of Jesus by getting Pilate and the others to crucify him. And they thought, well, we got him now. The Romans crucified him, put him on a cross. He died, then they took him off. They put him in a tomb, rolled a stone in front of it, and then they put a Roman seal on the tomb which was guarded by uh, Roman guards who would have been executed if they fell asleep on duty. So they were breathing a sigh of relief, these religious tenants, these religious leaders. They had killed the son outside of the city, just like the parable. They'd killed him. They had buried him. And they said, we're still good. Here's one problem. The stone rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. The stone came out. The stone was vindicated. The stone was victorious. The sun didn't stay dead. In fact, the stone, the sun, promised 
that he would be buried in three days. He would resurrect. It vindicated who he was. And what he came back to say is, listen, now I am the stone that was rejected by Israel. I am not going away. I'm actually going to be a cornerstone for something totally new. It's going to incorporate the saved out of Israel, and then it's going to incorporate all the saved out of the Gentile world, and I'm going to be the cornerstone of a new kingdom, of a new people. The resurrection vindicated who Jesus was. Now let me give you three applications. Three applications. What does this mean for you? And how could I share this with someone else? What does this mean if we look at this from the standpoint of our modern day lives? Well, Jesus is still the victorious, rejected Messiah. And it is because of that resurrection But now he is offering himself. He's come to his world, this entire vineyard of the world. He's come back as God's son, the resurrected son. And he says, I'm here. And he's he's hoping that the people in this room, that the people in the world, that the people you share Christ will look at the son, not just the messengers, but look at the son and, and feel the shame of their sin. And the brokenness of their sin. Remember the owner in the parable was hoping. When the son showed up, they would feel shame for having rejected the messengers. And they would say, look, the owner cares about his vineyard this much. And he sends his own son. And and there will be people who, when they hear the gospel and they see the son came in the flesh to offer grace. And to continue to offer them blessing in their lives. When When they see that. Uh, Jesus comes for them that they will feel the shame of their rebellion, the shame of their sin, and they'll understand that life is so much better and life is meant to be lived under the leadership of God, and so they will embrace and repent of that pride and embrace their Messiah. So Jesus has come. The one that was rejected as the Messiah of Israel is now the Messiah, the Savior, the anointed one for the whole world. And so we must repent and embrace the Messiah. But we got to do it because this, this, this tells us here, we got to do it before it's too late. Because even this blessing, the opportunity to be saved, eventually will come to an end. Eventually. So if you're here this morning and you've not done that, I can remember resisting that message. As a little kid, I've known people throughout my life who have heard the message and they just kind of keep saying, God, I like my garden to myself. Stay out of my garden. The second thing you need to do is don't resist the messengers. Don't resist the messengers. Respond humbly to the messengers I'm so glad there's different types of messengers in my life you know the first messengers of the gospel were my parents I think God's how many of you your parents were messengers of the gospel to you raise your hand isn't that awesome I hope you're a messenger of the gospel and sometimes people push the parents the parents We don't want you or your message. They resist the messenger of the parents. Then there are people who finally 
responded to the messengers of some friends later on in life, maybe a brother or a sister, maybe a co-worker. God sends messages. He uses pastors. Maybe I'm, I'm in that line of messengers today, and you're sitting here, you're watching, and I'm here to clearly tell you, I just don't want you to miss that. I'm here clearly to tell you that your Creator wants what's best for you, and He loves you. He created you and designed you to worship and to work in His garden. And that is the most glorious way of life, and He wants to give you an eternal life and a new heaven and a new earth. Don't resist the owner. You're designed for relationship with Him. You say, well, Pastor, I'm going to go on down the road. Not ready. And you can push me aside and you can just say, that's one more message I'm just not going to respond to. Or you can say, this is, this is the one. I'm going to respond today. I know if you're listening to me here and you're here, I know you have an opportunity today, but I don't know if you'll have another opportunity. Don't keep pushing him away. In the, in the New Testament, it speaks of the unpardonable sin. You ever heard of the unpardonable sin? There's a lot of different thoughts about what the unpardonable sin is. But we know that it's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? I think I go along with some of the interpreters who think of it this way. It says when you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, that's the unpardonable sin. You can't be saved. What does that mean? Well, think of it in terms of this parable. Is that Israel and the people and these tenants, these leaders, they had the witness of the Father through the prophets. The prophets over hundreds of years came and the law came. And God revealed himself, as Hebrews 1 says, in many portions and in many ways. Angels, prophets. So the Father kept revealing himself over and over and over again and they, they resisted that. So the father sent his son. They resisted the father, then they sent the son. The son came and he preached and he healed and he offered salvation. He died on the cross. He came and he said, I'm your, I'm your Messiah. And so uh, they resisted the son. But even that verse about blaspheming of the Spirit, he said, you can say bad things about the son, but when you say and resist and blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you're truly going to be lost. And we see it. In the book of Acts, when Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, testifies before the leadership of Israel, these tenants, these leaders, when he testified and he was, uh, they were in awe of his authority, the Holy Spirit was just beaming through him, and Jesus was standing in heaven. I mean, this was an incredible moment as Stephen is preaching the gospel and Paul, uh, Peter is preaching the gospel and thousands are being saved and the Holy Spirit's rushing around in Jerusalem. You know, it, it says, sounded like a rushing wind and the, the, the people were coming out and they were speaking in different languages and so the Holy Spirit was exploding all over Jerusalem and through this man, temple, uh, through this man Stephen and what did the leaders do to Stephen? They stoned him to death. I think it was at that moment. They resisted the Father, they resisted the Son, they resisted the Holy Spirit. And we're in the Holy Spirit age right now. We're in that period of the time where the Spirit of God is coming and He's just He's pointing to Jesus and He's telling you, look to Jesus, 
Look to Jesus. He's your salvation. He's your grace. He's your forgiveness. The Holy Spirit says, look to Jesus. But I'm telling you, if you resist the Holy Spirit, there's not going to be a fourth witness. There's not another opportunity. The gospel is your last chance. The Holy Spirit is saying, the owner's son came and he died for you and he offers you life. He will forgive you if you'll receive it and he will fill you. And you can have right relationship with the creator. Don't resist the messenger of the Holy Spirit. Embrace the Messiah. He's going to have to clean things up, but it's worth it. Let me give you the third thing. If you are a believer here, and I think most of you are, you're followers of Christ, and you believe in Jesus, and you've, you've been saved, and we, need, we still have a mission in God's vineyard. Because you and I now are that vine. Jesus is the vine and we are the what? This is my symbol of branches in case you're getting getting tired, ready to go home. He says, and the way they'll know you're my disciples is you will bear much what? Fruit. And the branches that don't bear fruit, I'll break them off and throw them away. They'll be burned. He says, you are my branches. You are my vine. I want you to bear fruit. And you'll bear fruit by abiding in me and my word. Living by faith in my word. I, I, I want us to hear as believers now, and I think a lot of us here, we know we're saved, but do we, we still sometimes act like we own this life? We still act like owners instead of renters. We still act like we're bossing God around. We still act like God's in the way. We keep tripping over Jesus, trying to do what we want to do. Get out of the way. I'm too busy. We want the blessings without the owner. we got to be careful. Listen, there's work to be done in this vineyard for all of us. There is fruit to be brought to the owner. The fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of people who we've helped lead and nurture to Christ. He's looking for fruit in your life. And if you're living like a renter, you're waking up and say, listen, I'm blessed to be in his vineyard. Every breath I take comes from lungs that he created. Every heartbeat is from a heart he put in me. And that today is his day. And whether I'm a plumber, an educator, a pastor, whatever it is, I'm going to glorify God today because this is his life and I'm here to glorify him. and, and, And here's the amazing thing is that through salvation, we're actually... In the sun, we're grafted into the sun. We're, we're going to inherit the vine. We're going to inherit the blessings of the sun forever and ever. You ought to wake up in a good mood every day. We don't, though, do we? Because we wake up and we think, oh, I own this mess. i got to fix it. I'm in control. We have a certain amount of control, but we ultimately, we just turn to Christ and, and, and we try to obey and live by His, by his, uh, his, his Word, and, and He will bear fruit in our lives for the Father's glory.
Let me close this way. So at the end of this parable, there's a question asked that I think is it's, it's subtle, but it's interesting. At the very, in the very last verses, it says, And they perceived he was talking about them. Duh. <laughs> right? Do you perceive that God's talking to you about something this morning? Do you perceive he might be talking about you? In what way? Has he confirmed, I've received the Son, I'm gloriously a part of his vineyard, I want to bear fruit for him? Or do you perceive maybe you've resisted Christ? And this is another message, and you have another opportunity. Will you receive him? What do you perceive? Is he telling you about you? Because I guarantee he's talking to you because he's talking to me. But then one of the saddest things at the end of this is that the religious leaders who had publicly prayed, we sure hope God cleans this temple up and shows back up. He did, and they executed him. These religious leaders and the others were listening, and they didn't do anything. They didn't change. They decided to kill Jesus because it says they feared the people. Is there a fear this morning between you and trusting Christ with your life? Is there a fear of people? Is there a fear of, of something in your life you're afraid you're going to have to give up? What fear could possibly come between you and the grace of God in Jesus? Put that fear aside. And you say, Pastor, I don't know, I don't know if I've got it together enough. I don't know if my heart's, you don't understand how bad my heart is. I don't think God, God's going to take me this way. Oh, listen. God is the greatest transplant surgeon that's ever been. He says in Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart. A new spirit I will put within you. I'll cut out and remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will put in you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You just kind of come to, come to God this morning like Greg went to that surgeon yesterday, the day before. Just, all Greg could do was lay down on the table and trust the surgeon that he knew what he's doing. And he woke up with new lungs. That's, that's how we come to God. We come to God and say, God, I can't do it myself. I need a new heart. My, my natural heart hates you because you get in the way of my control. I need a new heart that loves you. Would you give it to me? And he will. Let's pray together. every head bowed, just a moment of reflection. Do you perceive that God has been talking to you? And I don't know what he may have said to you, but I pray you'll respond. If you've never trusted Christ, you can just reach out in prayer right now. Just ask him to forgive you.
of your sin. Repent of that. Turn to him and say, God, give me a new heart. I ask for a new heart and I ask for eternal life. And he will give that to you. It's the only way you can get it is a gift. You have to ask for it. Would you ask him to save you? And he will. Nothing fancy. You just turn to him in humility, responding to the message of the gospel. And you receive the owner's son in love. Receive Jesus. Believers, if you will just kind of look to the owner and say, God, I want to bear as much fruit in my life as I possibly can for your glory. You've blessed me with this life, with my time, my talents, my treasures. May I just multiply those for your glory. Father, I just thank you for these meals with Jesus. They're so deep and rich and challenging. God, thank you that you've reminded me and everyone uh, through this that we are renters. You're the creator. Help us be faithful. But help us know how much you love us to send the Son and to rescue us. And Father, I pray that each of us would walk out this week and maybe have a gospel conversation. Just share this kind of grace with our friends and our families. May we not walk from the mirror of God's word unchanged. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.